6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 49 through 51. So there are several places like this where it is expressed as to what the historical occasion was that gave rise to the song. That doesn't limit its application. It just gives you a sense of the context here. Because this not only applies to David in this situation, it may apply to every one of us in a number of ways. When Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, this is the occasion. And here's David's psalm that he composed. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So that's David's plea, and the reason this is so dear to all of us, that needs to be our plea also. There's not one of us in this room that aren't in need of essentially the same kind of confession and appeal to the judge of the universe. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Now, transgressions is to step over. Transgressions is to step over the boundaries that God may have set up. The word iniquity is that which is just altogether wrong. And the word sin I'll explain here in a little bit. The important thing here, first is first step, is that David admitted it. He owned it. He was not in denial. He confesses it. And in, in verse 2 and 3... The word for sin in the Hebrew is shatah, which is, means that like a, it, the word like for sin offering. In verse 4, it's a similar word, but in the Septuagint, in the, when translated in the Greek, they use the term hamatur, which is to miss the mark. And that's where usually the old English term for sin is like an archery term, missing the mark. And uh, so, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That is the theme of this whole psalm. It needs to be the theme of our lives. We need to understand the reality here. The word uh, for uh, sin here is kata, which is a sin or like sin offering. And uh, the Greek translation, three centuries before Christ's ministry in the Greek, is the word from which we get the word sin. Uh, it, it's an archer to, to miss the mark, to miss the so that's the first three verses. Now we're going to go to the cry of confession of sin and appeal for clemency. David goes on and says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And uh, This is a tough one because many people say, gee, wait a minute, what do you mean? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. Yes, indeed. They're all gone now. The critical one that eclipses all of that is God himself that he sinned against. Not demeaning the others, but that's the one he's focusing on here. 
Romans 3.23, most popular verse, should be in our list of memory verses. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is in the same shoes as David. Sin against whom? Against Bathsheba? Of course. What could she do? He was king. Against Uriah, her husband? Of course. He was murdered by deceit. It's called duggery. Against Joab by even involving him in this tryst and the rest. Against his family. I always get a, I'm always amused by these discussions among some attorneys about victimless crimes. There's no crime that's victimless. All kind, and you, 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 you are sinning against anyone that loves you when you sin. Most of all, God himself. It's against the community of Jerusalem. He was king. It's a sin against the community of Jerusalem. President Clinton, what he did to this country and the nation is absolutely irreparable. Against the nation in which he was king, but the real issue that eclipses all of this is against God himself because he's the ultimate judge. And this is a sin against God, especially the way God had blessed David and the way God has blessed every one of us in this room. Two things we need to really be guarded against, ingratitude and presumption. Subtle, but deadly. David continued, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Doesn't mean that it was sin that caused him to be birthed. He means he's born in sin, he's born with it. We, you and I, have a genetic defect. Not that we're HIV positive, we're SIN positive. Ecclesiastes 7.20, For there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There's no one that doesn't sin. Proverbs 30, there's a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Everybody thinks they're doing all right. Not so. In Romans 3.23, that's probably the key of them all. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You can find, we could concatenate probably another dozen verses that hammer the same thing all through, all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The sin nature. Samuel Johnson said, every man knows that of himself which he dares not tell his dearest friend. Well, if a character is what you are when no one's looking. <laughs> Seneca said, we must say of ourselves that we are evil, have been evil, and unhappily, I must add, shall also be in the future evil. Nobody can deliver himself. Someone must stretch out a hand to lift him up. This is not a new idea. Continuing in Psalm 51, David says, Behold, Speaking to God, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. What's really going on the inside, not the outside appearances, what's really going on in the heart. And then this critical verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. You know, you get the impression that David's coming from a very hard place. It's not like he was really comfortable. He really thought he'd gotten away with it. He's coming out of a time of huge depression. Whatever the interval was between the sin and being confronted by Nathan, it was an agonizing time of covering up. You get the impression that David it was not easy. It not like he thought he had gotten, really thought he'd gotten away with it. He knew he had, he, he, he was torn up. A Christian cannot be comfortable in his sin. 
Purge me with hyssop. What do we mean by hyssop? Well, if we go to Exodus 34, the, uh, God says in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by, speak to Moses here, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. So God is a just God. That will by no means clear the guilty. He can't just pardon without it being paid for. That's the point. Socrates even recognized the paradox that's presented here. It may be that God can forgive sin, but I don't see how. That was Socrates' insight. If you've got a just God, it's got to be, someone's got to pay for it. You can't ignore it. Hyssop is the biblical term we see it all through the Bible. It's a, a hyssop is probably marjoram or it's a, a herb that has a little hairy, it's the kind of thing you can, it, it's useful for sprinkling things on. It was used to apply the blood to the doorposts during Passover. I want you to notice how hyssop is in the Bible always associated with the sprinkling of blood. It applied the blood to the doorpost during Passover. When in Leviticus, Leviticus 14, where they're dealing with the cleansing of a leopard, he had two birds, one was the blood of the one was put on the other and it was turned loose. The picture of the resurrection and the, and the shed blood and so forth. One dipped the blood of the other and, and was released, but what was split, the blood was sprinkled with the hyssop. Numbers 19, where the ashes of the red heifer was applied, it was with hyssop. And uh, Hebrews 9.19, it was used to sprinkle the blood on vessels and all the way through. It's a summary verse in Hebrews Hebrews 9. When Moses had spoken, the writer of Hebrews points out, when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Again, hyssop is tied to this idea of sprinkling of blood. And what does the blood refer to? What does the blood refer to? Blood of Jesus Christ in anticipation. Not the blood of bull and goats. It's, 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 it's an exemplar. It's a tupos. It's a type of the blood that was shed on the cross. Hyssop. Sprinkled the blood. When you think of hyssop, it's used to sprinkle the blood. Hebrews continues in... And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. That's the dilemma of Judaism today. There's no place to shed blood, and you know without shedding of blood, there's no dealing with sin. They've got a huge, huge fundamental problem. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And the writer goes on. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. It's astonishing to discover how many churches are embarrassed by mentioning the blood of Christ. Well, that's old-fashioned. 
Indeed it is. Praise God. Okay, and then the final section is the cleansing and communion. David continues, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. You see, David needed a spot remover. You and I have one. You want to know what your spot, where your spot remover is? It's 1 John 1.9. Write it down, memorize it. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 is our spot remover. Blot out all mine iniquities, David Christ. And then he has this other verse that's so often sung in church. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. One of the most provocative words in that verse is the first word. The word in the Hebrew is bara, which means it's the same word that is in Genesis chapter 1. Barashit, bara, Elohim, and so forth. In the beginning, God created out of nothing. Nowhere in the Bible do you find a heart being healed, a heart being uh, uh, cured. You always see a new heart being given. Why? Because of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked, Jeremiah points out. So David's not asking to have his heart cleansed. He's not asking it for it to be repaired, improved, educated, enlightened. No, 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 no. Create in me a clean heart. He's asking for regeneration. And renew a right spirit within me or constant spirit within me. Second Corinthians 5.17, all things have become new in the believer. Key concept. Now, the next verse is one you and I cannot pray. Verse 11 doesn't fit us. It's a, he says here, uh, yeah, cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Saul could sweat that. Saul had the Holy Spirit was taken away from him. All through the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and go like the wind. The, the guy that really understood the Old Testament was a guy by the name of Paul. He was trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel himself. And what stunned him to come to grips with in his epistles, he tries to get that across, is the fact that you and I have a gift that the Old Testament saint would have dreamed for, and that is that the Holy Spirit was given without repentance. That you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is, not, that is a New Testament concept. And it was Paul's privilege to have that revealed to him and to communicate it. That's why the Ephesians chapter 3 and other, many, of, many of Paul's epistles don't resonate with us because we're getting an answer and we don't know what the question is. The issue is that the, the, the sealing role of the Holy Spirit, that's distinctive to this peculiar people that God has called for what we call the ecclesia or the church. Not the physical church, the mystical church. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, David says. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Not restore the salvation. Many people misunderstand. No, re restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. 
I'd love to ask this question. How many of you in this room are saved? My next question is, what have you done with it? David made a commitment. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted to thee. I won't ask you for a show of hands, or how many, of you, how many people have you impacted. If you're any good, you probably have no idea. There's more than you probably have any idea. David continues, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Verses 14 and 15 are parallel. This is, we talked about, I've skipped all that tutorial front end this time, because you've heard it before by review, but this whole idea of parallelism. They're saying the same thing a different way. Deliver me, and my tongue shall sing aloud. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, or else I'd give it. Thou deliest not in burnt offerings. That's it. So a couple of questions for you to jot down and think about. What is the measure of your love? David poured his heart out in Psalm 51. He'd really blown it. He was in big trouble. But he stepped up to it. He didn't deny it. He admitted it. He confessed it. Threw himself on God's mercy. What is the measure of your love? If I ask how many of you love God, I'd get all the hands. Sure, of course. But how, what's the measure of your love of God? It's the estimate of your own sins. How, how spiritually mature are you? Well, how much do you hate sin? When you hate sin as much as God hates sin. I'm not talking about hating the sinner. We get that backwards. We love the sin and we hate the sinner. No, no, it's the other way around. But when you hate sin the way God hates sin, then you're maturing. See? Is it possible that you do not confess your sins? Have you really confessed your sins before him? When was the last time you wept over your sins? David wept over his sins. When was the last time you cried out in the night because of your failures before him? There is forgiveness with him, but there must first be confession on our part. Easy thing to jot down in notes, easy thing to give intellectual assent for, but do we really do it? David Final finishes up, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion, build thou the walls of Jerusalem, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness and the burnt offering and whole burnt offering, and then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. altar. And so is this couple of comments about David. David at his zenith was a, was a victorious warrior, clever general. He subdues the Philistines to the west. That was Saul's nemesis. The Syrians and Hadadezer in the north, the Ammonites and Moabites in the east and the Edomites and Amalekites in the south. All these traditional enemies were subdued under David's generalship. Sharp guy. He was a very constructive administrator. The scripture says judgment and justice for all the people were under his realm. We miss a lot of that. 
Because we focus on something else that certainly is also very important. Well, one other thing. He organized the priesthood into 24 courses. You need to understand that or you won't understand Revelation 5. The 24 elders and what that's all about. But in spite of being a good administrator and a clever general and a real military leader, he also was a major poet, probably the major poet of Israel and a major songwriter. We're struggling with 73 psalms that were penned by David and some of the other anonymous ones may also have been ascribed to him. So he was the primary songwriter. Interesting guy. But his turning point was his great sin. And if nothing else, it's interesting to notice the honesty of the scriptures. They don't, you know, wash over the failures of their primary hero. It's right out there. Adultery and then murder and all the rest. It was not an incident. The incident with Bathsheba. No, 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 no. It's a process. First he laid back. He wasn't where he was supposed to be as a general. He... You know, these things are a sequence of events. A prosperous ease, self-indulgence. Accumulating wives was forbidden in Deuteronomy 17, but he accumulated quite a few. But the good news is remorse and he was remorseful and he repented. He confessed and he repented. That's what Psalm 51 documents for us. That's why in the Bible... The one person that is clearly identified as a man after God's own heart is David. God isn't expecting him to be sinless. He is a sinner. So are you and I. But he does expect us to repent of it, confess it, and deal with it. Because God has provided remedies for our sinful nature. Psalm 89, we'll get to later, of course, but I thought I'd throw it in here now as you get a perspective. God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne unto all generations. Selah. Psalm 89. We need to understand that despite these failures, that David enjoys a Commitment of God. And Mary was given a promise that her child would sit on David's throne. David is exalted for all generations, indeed. Let's you and I remember something else as we deal with these issues. Galatians 6.1, another memory verse for those of you who are so inclined. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Indeed. Praise God. Now the next session that we have, we'll have just four, four little tiny psalms, four prophetic psalms, and we're going to explore them not in terms of the historical context that gave rise to them. We have no idea what really was there. But explore the possibility that they're prophetic not just in the messianic sense, necessarily, but they're going to deal with the Antichrist. They're going to be eschatological. And it's amazing to me how few commentators even pick up on this, but for what it's worth, we'll explore that 
Psalm 52, 53, 54, and 55. Four little psalms in the next session. Well, Father, as we consider the plight of David, his sinfulness and yet his repentance, we recognize, Father, ourselves, because we too are subject to the same sin nature. We too are sinners. Father, we would pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would give us no peace until we rest in you. We pray, Father, that you would receive us too as sinners as we acknowledge before you our sins, our sins of commission, the things we've done that we shouldn't, our sins of omission, the things we should have done and didn't do. But also, Father, our sins of presumption when we presume to try to order our lives by ourselves without your leading. And above all, Father, our sins of ingratitude as we fail to acknowledge that everything we receive comes from your hand. We thank you, Father, for the incredible abundance we enjoy. We thank you, Father, for the incredible opportunities you've placed before us. Father, we would pray that you would also give us the discernment to view all these things from an eternal standpoint. And we'd recognize that our lives are but a vapor a brief parenthesis in eternity. We pray, Father, that you would continue to patiently guide us, correct us, strengthen us, encourage us, enlighten us, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we might be more effective stewards of these opportunities and more pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and redeemer, as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Amen.